I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. And what do we do here? We read books. We synthesize them. We summarize them. And we give them to you with our perspectives. And if you don't like our perspectives, I understand that. Sometimes I hate what I have to say as well. But I recommend maybe you just read the book yourself. If you don't want to read the book yourself, because reading is for nerds. And you do think that some people deserve to be bullied slightly. For their words. Continue down this rabbit hole with us. And boy, oh boy, are we hunting rabbits. (laughs) Ashley, do you have any announcements up top real quick? Of course I do. I love to announce. I feel like I'm the class president and I get to make morning announcements at school. I would like to announce a reminder that we dropped fresh merch this last week and it is so beautiful. I cried. And we have a weekly comedy show at Nikki's Unisex every Thursday at 7 p.m. in Williamsburg. It is so much fun. If you haven't made it out yet, please come by this Thursday. And if you have made it out, we have a new lineup every single week. So come again. You'll find a fresh, new, beautiful show to appreciate. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. Before we get into... The people we've never met. Should we touch base with each other? I think that that sounds fun. If you were a celebrity and you were going to write a memoir, what would you have called this last week's memoir? I would call this last week's memoir Little Acorns, based off of the White Stripes song Little Acorns, which is about a woman who's learning to deal with an overwhelming amount of things. And so she sees this squirrel gathering acorns for the winter, and she's like, oh my God, this squirrel isn't thinking about having to gather tons of acorns together a whole winter. This squirrel is just being like, see one acorn, pick up one acorn. And that is how we should view our problems and thoughts and overwhelming situations is just like one little acorn at a time. And I'm not good at it. I feel like when I finally laid out my acorns to be like, this is the things that I have to accomplish in the next several months, I became deeply overwhelmed by the pile of acorns in front of me and had a bit of a crisis. However... I'm going to try and break it down again and view everything as just one little piece and see how we go. Good luck, my little squirrel. I believe in you. Thanks. Claire? Yes. If you had to title a chapter of your memoir based on this last week, what would you call it? Who? Me? Okay. And that is because if you guys listen to the Patreon this week, you know me and Ashley both. Something happened with the moon and we were both (laughs) just not doing great. We got a bit overwhelmed and I always thought I was not just confident, but potentially cocky. Because historically, when I didn't get the things I wanted, I'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with those people? I'm better than this. (laughs) And now it's becoming apparent to me that maybe I don't believe in myself. What? Because now that things are starting to go well for us, I like cannot believe it. And I was like, do I not believe in me? Yeah, that is a lot to unpack. It's like a box I have to unpack that I didn't know I had. I feel like I'm moving out of a house and I was like, oh my God, what is this? The attic is full of surprises. I feel like one box is full of questioning your belief in yourself, but another box will have Christmas decorations. So this week, you guys, we have an incredible double header. When I say I really try my hardest for you guys, this week (laughs) we tried our hardest. We figured we could not do two Bachelor weeks. So instead we did two Bachelor books. In one week. This week, we are about to get into Bachelorette, Hannah Brown, and Woke King, Tyler Cameron. Ashley, did you watch either of them on The Bachelor? No. Did you? No, because you know, Colton's season was the virgin season. And if anybody's listened to this podcast, they know I famously hate virgins. (laughs) And that's when I said, Bachelor Nation, I'm moving out. (laughs) Yeah, she moved to a different nation. 
I moved to Fuckboy Island. Where there's no taxes. It's like Bermuda. (laughs) So first up this week, we are going to discuss Hannah Brown's memoir. Then we are going to discuss a little bit of Tyler Cameron's memoir. And then we are welcoming two guests to help us really understand Tyler Cameron. Emma and Claire from the Love to See It podcast. You guys, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So make sure you've got some water, some fresh roses. And goo. Huh? Like run goo. Oh, like electrolytes. Gooblets, I think they are. Okay. We'll tell you when. We'll pace you. We'll tell you when you need to take your gooblets. <laughs> Shall we begin with Hannah Brown and her memoir, God Bless This Mess? God, what a mess. I'm just kidding. I actually kind of liked this book, but we're going to get into why she thinks she's a mess. Hannah Brown was born September 24th, 1994. This book did just come out recently. She says actually in the book, I'm only 26. And then in parentheses, she has to say, I'm actually 27, but I was 26 when I was writing it. And I was like, wow, there is a distinction that did not matter. (laughs) I actually thought that line was quite insightful in that she knows nobody would read this book after the course of a year. Like, by the time she's 28, nobody will be reading this book. Well, yeah, because by then she'll have a second book. God bless this home. How I met the love of my life, got married, and built a home. So Hannah Brown is from a small town outside of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. She has a little brother named Patrick. She has two parents. She has an older half-sister that barely gets mentioned. She's only mentioned to be like, by the way, I have an older half-sister. Her father was a successful hairdresser who owned his own salon and Paul Mitchell styling classes. So they owned multiple schools in the area. Her mother was a stay-at-home mom. But something that she makes a big point of saying is the way that her mom was a huge part of her dad's business and did a lot of the accounting and the back end and the books and stuff. And how growing up watching her mom support her husband in that way and get no monetary gain and be trapped in a pretty toxic marriage because she had no financial independence was a huge lesson that she didn't just see by living it. But also she was told specifically by her mother, be an independent woman, have your own source of income. Her parents really went in and out of getting along literally at all. And her mom was pretty open about the fact that she was completely trapped in her relationships. The ugly truth is that their marriage consisted of a lot of built up resentment, a lot of fighting and a lot of harsh words and threats of leaving that they yelled at each other in the middle of the night using language that I would never, ever want to hear my own marriage. It's bad enough that I had to hear it as a little girl hiding in my bedroom. Because of this turmoil at home, Hannah really became like a goody-two-shoes peacemaker. The way that she internalized this home conflict was not to act out, but to be perfect. She felt from a very early age, if she did everything perfectly, there would be no reason for anyone to fight. There'd be no reason for anyone to have conflict. Like she could make everyone's lives perfect. She was always smiling from the time she was little. You're always smiling, the adults would say, as if that was the best thing ever, as if smiling was what I was supposed to do. So I did, no matter what I was feeling. The message I got before I was even in kindergarten was, you're not supposed to show emotion that isn't happy. So I turned every emotion into a smile. I've gone back and forth on whether or not I think that this book even makes sense to exist. But I do think that this is an interesting perspective of a tumultuous but not overwhelmingly horrible childhood that I think we don't see illustrated that much. And I'm glad she wrote about it. She does say a couple things that feels like she's trying to like uniqueify her situation a little bit. And I'm just like, I think that the 
crux here of what's interesting to read is how common this is and that it's not interesting. She does seem to have this idea that like she was the only person at school with problems. Every other family she went over to, they all had beautiful homes and there was no chaos and they all went to church and she wanted that. She says that she wanted her parents to be grilling her on her Bible studies and taking her to church every Sunday. And I'm sorry, I just don't believe that every family in Tuscaloosa was perfect. She does say things about uniqueness. Like, for some reason, my entire life, I've been drawn to beautiful things. And it's like, oh, how fascinating. That's very unique. (laughs) One of the things I love about this book is that she ends up going to therapy. And she's a big advocate of going to therapy. And I appreciate that because I believe in that too. But I do think sometimes there's a little bit too much therapy going on. She tells this story about how in first grade, she was a wonderful colorer. (laughs) She loved to draw on the lines. And one time they tried to do Easter eggs at school and hers came out ugly. And so some girls made fun of her ugly Easter egg and she gave up being creative for the rest of her life. And I was like, oh my God, okay. I mean, not everything needs to be analyzed. (laughs) She tells you in this book that she started going to therapy at 25. As we know, this book was finalized when she was 26. That's a lot to unpack in less than a year and then decide I'm ready to really put this in print. (laughs) I will say, though, she has one extremely unique, specific, incredible story. And not incredible in a good way, but incredible trauma that she first opens up about in this book that was not on her season The Bachelor and that she says she actually had a hard time acknowledging until she went to therapy. And that is that on May 11th, 2001, so she would have been six years old, her aunt and her two cousins who are her age were brutally murdered They were stabbed to death by a man who had done construction on their home and then tried to rob them and murdered them all. The parents sitting Hannah and her brother down to say, your aunt and your cousins are no longer with us. It's impossible to explain that situation delicately. Like when a little kid loses a grandparent, you're like, grandma's in heaven now. We'll figure out how to parse that out later. This, it's just like your cousins were murdered. They never had a full discussion on it. She just got a loose frame of the story. So anytime anyone ever came to the door, she pretty much had PTSD thinking anyone coming to our door could be here to murder us. No one is good. We could all die at any second. This gave her terrible anxiety. And because she grew up in a family that was very anti-therapy, anti-talking about your feelings, she mostly bottled it all in. She said that she didn't cry at the funeral and that they just never discussed it again. They didn't have another conversation about it until she was working on this book. As I got older on a couple of occasions, I tried to talk about some of this with people I cared about, but their reaction was like, wow, that's awful. I don't want to hear about that. That's just too much to handle. So whenever she does try to be vulnerable with people, she gets shut down by it. And I think that this explains a lot of why I don't want to like diagnose someone's religiousness, but I think it explains why she leaned so hard into God because her family was not hyper-religious. For being a family in Tuscaloosa, her parents like didn't make her go to church. She was the one who adamantly was like obsessed with going to church every single week. She talks about her faith a ton in this book. And I feel like she leaned into it because she needed somewhere to look. Throughout this book, she finds and loses her faith a lot. The second big thing that happens to her in her childhood, though, is when she is in first grade, she has a terrible, horrible pain in her stomach. She has to leave class. They take her to two different doctors. Both doctors say it's just IBS. Hannah continues to complain. Her mom goes, no, look into it further. They do an MRI, and they found a giant malignant tumor in her pancreas. She had pancreatic cancer. So it was very encapsulated in the tumor. It didn't spread anywhere. And if it had, pancreatic cancer is not one that you really come back from. And this really helped her faith. She said that she wasn't even nervous as a little girl, that she was so sure that Jesus had her, that she was going to survive this. And I think that a lot of her faith comes from this moment. And then she didn't even need radiation or chemo or anything because it was so encapsulated. They got it out. All the cancer was gone. It was really just one surgery. And she was like, "Mm, that's Jesus. She also says that as a little girl, she was sure that she was destined for something big. The thing that came to me when I was 10 is that I wanted to do something big. 
that's it. I didn't know what big meant, what it was, what it represented. And I kept having this deep down feeling that I was supposed to be doing something big with my life as if God had some big purpose for me. Why couldn't my spark have been, I think I want to work in a hospital or I want to get married and have kids of my own someday or anything even slightly normal. Having this big feeling without any context or understanding of how a girl from Alabama goes and does something big with her life just left me with all kinds of anxiety. I will say that's not anxiety that I'll really acknowledge. (laughs) I will think like, what do I want to be when I grow up anxiety? I'm just like, yeah, sure. Will I be murdered because it did happen to my cousins? That one I'll say, lean into it, baby. (laughs) And listen, I actually liked Hannah and I'm like positive towards this book. I like, we need to be like, listen, we're about to say some mean stuff and I want you to know it's mean in a nice way. You like nailed it on the head. Something about this book is she is in so many ways so deeply ordinary that I do think a lot of people could get a lot from this book. I couldn't because her good girl syndrome, the way to fix everything is to try to be perfect. And if nobody likes you, just try harder to be perfect. That's never been my personal struggle. I feel like if anything, I'm the opposite. But I do think that this type of girl exists a lot. And to see that her journey is basically the more that she allows herself to be her authentic self and the less hard she tries to be this perfect idea that she thinks is everyone else's head, the more success she finds. And I think that is a good message. I agree. The reason I think I'm overly critical of this book is because I think that she is deeply ordinary and therefore she has a story that resonates with a ton of other people. And I think that she's at the beginning of a journey of growth and discovering herself right now. And I think she thinks that when she was 24 and she was on The Bachelor, she discovered herself. And then when she was 25 and she was The Bachelorette, she discovered herself. But she just started going to therapy. She just started really figuring out what all of this means. And I think that she could have written, honestly, a pretty impactful book at like age 30. But you have to take it for what it is. She will not exist on the planet of people that matter at age 30. I know. Within those parameters of it was gun to your head, write a book now or write a book never. This was better than I think a lot of them. I agree with that. But anyway, the line I'm about to make fun of her for is so much happened in my life over the course of the next few years. I can't even begin to try to explain it all at once. She's about to get into the years of high school and these things that are so overwhelming that she doesn't even know that you can handle it. (laughs) She has an after school activity and she has boyfriends. And she goes to regular school. Can you imagine that? Being in high school and having an extracurricular and a social life? Are you sitting down? Are you overwhelmed? She goes to high school and she's, like we've said, in the South. And so they have high school pageants. Every grade had a pageant. There was always the most beautiful girl in the grade. I think this sounds healthy. I was losing my shit. at this. You know how they'll pretend that beauty pageant, so there's like a talent portion? This was just 50 girls per grade would line up. You had to hit three poses as they said your name, and then they just ranked you. (laughs) Imagine the guidance counselor coming out and saying, this is the hottest girl in eighth grade. I got a bunch of the PTA moms together, and we've all decided it. That's what they were doing, and in eighth grade, she won. Sixth grade, she ranked, much to her surprise. Seventh grade, she like ranked a little higher, and then eighth grade, she was the winner, and she was like, this is it. I'm on my way to achieving something. And she's obsessed with pageants. She wants to be Miss USA so badly. No, she wants to be Miss America. I always forget that it's two different things. I always thought that people were just saying those words interchangeably. I can't believe we have both. One has a talent, and one does not. We could argue they both do or don't. <laughs> <laughs> So she wants to be Miss Something, and this is where she gets her first taste of it and the first realization that she can make it happen. So she convinces her mom that she should be able to start competing in actual pageants, and her mom is like, I'm kind of worried about the pageant circuit, but I like doing activities with you, so we will. And they like that she keeps winning. And she's good at it. But with pageant world comes insecurity, and one of her biggest insecurities is her legs, which I think she writes about in a way that doesn't feel entirely worked through, which at 
26 makes sense that it's not entirely worked through. But I, I like the way she wrote about it. One thing that she writes about very well that comes across is how toxic it is when people are like, wow, you look great when you've lost weight. And it's like, well, I just had six weeks of the stomach flu. So I guess you like me most when I'm closest to death. Being in these activities, seeing yourself compared to taller, more slender girls, and especially she mentions catalogs where she would see the limited two models and the people who like were succeeding in the world that she wanted to succeed in. She felt like she looked very different from them. The activities she did, because she wasn't allowed to do softball because her mom said it was too butch. Things like dance where you're literally putting a lineup of eight-year-old girls in leotards staring at the mirror and being like, compare the details of your bodies. Mm -hmm. Like that is bad for people. And then to, of course, transition to pageants where you hire a coach who tells you how much weight you need to lose. One director of a pageant sent her a photo of another girl's body and said, you have to look like this by next month. People were specifically critiquing and judging her body. The pageant circuit is obviously full of unhealthy dieting eating disorders, and then people supporting looking like one specific body type, no matter how you were born. So when she was 17, she started competing for Miss Alabama in the Miss America pageant. She went three years in a row. Each year, she scored higher and higher, but she never won. And people kept telling her, well, you're 17, you're up against 26-year-olds. You have to pay your dues. There is apparently a tradition there where it's like you have to compete multiple times to earn the victory. And she didn't believe them, and she didn't want to stick it out. So by the time she was 20, she quit pageants. Also in high school, she has her first loves and heartbreaks. This was actually another one that I'm like glad she wrote about, but it's really difficult to read about. She was in a very abusive relationship when she was like 16 years old. Her first boyfriend was really controlling, really demanding, tried to pressure her in a lot of sexual ways too, which luckily she resisted. A lot of like screaming at her, not letting her leave his house. After she broke up with him, he would show up at her parents' house, essentially break in and she talked about the scene where she never realized how bad it was because her parents fought so often that she's like, that's just what happens in relationships. People fight. They're manipulative. He would call her fat. He would put her down all the time. And then she was telling her mom and her mom's friends one time about what he had been doing to her recently. And she said they started crying and they were so worried for her. And she was like, oh, this isn't normal. So there was another guy that she fell in love with when she was a freshman in high school. She just thought he was the most handsome boy in the whole world. He had a girlfriend. Senior year, after she had broken up with the bad guy, she and him started, his name was Brady, they started sneaking around, making out from time to time. He had an on-again, off-again girlfriend that he was not willing to off with entirely until finally one day he was like, do you know what? That relationship is over and you and I are going to really make a go for it. And so she was like head over heels, happy-go-lucky, can't believe she's dating the cutest boy in school. He took her for granted pretty heavily, it seems. And she knows that he had been intimate with his ex-girlfriend. And because of her pageant life, she isn't able to go on this big senior trip that the ex-girlfriend and Brady are going to be on. And she is so panicked about it. And I will say, if you have this fear about your boyfriend being around his ex, you're right. So they go on this trip. He swears up and down that nothing happened. She finds out that they boned. And not only did they bone, but he's like, yeah, I'm going to give it another shot with her. I actually realized I like her better. They break up. Unfortunately... They do go to the same college. Summer goes by. She's back in orientation, seeing Brady again. He and his girlfriend had broken up again, and they decide to give it another go. And this is one of the more heartbreaking things to me in this book. She felt like because she wasn't having sex with him, that's the reason he chose the other girl over her. And so she does have sex with him, even though we see her throughout this book really struggle with premarital sex. I disagree with that struggle. I don't think anyone should be made to feel shamed over their sexuality and like what they're doing. But I also think the fact that she pushed herself because she was afraid of losing her boyfriend sucks almost more. 
she goes through a real depression. Her parents obviously don't believe in depression and they keep saying, yeah, everyone's sad. Get over it. At this point, we find out that her mom's mom actually frequently tried to commit suicide and that her mom often had to go pick her up from mental hospitals. So she's just like, yeah, that's life. Everybody just wants to kill themselves. Get over it. (laughs) Luckily, she's in this sorority where she says she was constantly made to feel too poor to be there. And one day she was just having an absolute breakdown and a couple of the sorority girls came to her side and she ended up making lifelong friends out of it. Mm -hmm. By lifelong, I mean, it's now been eight years. With the help of those girls, she got on antidepressants. She got more involved in church again and she realized she had to break up with Brady. God talked to her. He told her the thing with Brady wasn't really working out. They were living very different lives. She was going to church, doing her pageant thing, doing her sorority stuff, but she's never been a partier. And Brady was like partying. She breaks up with him and feels an enormous relief wash over her, which I think is a great sign. She then immediately starts dating this guy, Austin, who she claims is very perfect, funny, loves her, respectful, ambitious, hardworking, faithful. She did not like him at all. They were seniors in college. She's at University of Alabama. And if you've been dating somebody in college, you just get married. So they were going engagement ring shopping. And he goes, are you still in love with your ex? And she's like, uh... Uh, and he's like, okay, that to me is a yes. And so they break up. The reason I know she didn't like Austin at all is because we got a lot of really positive qualities about him and no feelings about him. She loves Taylor Swift. And I definitely think her whole life has been written based on Taylor Swift songs. And so it was very the way I loved you for all the Swifties up there. They end that engagement. It's now the end of senior year in Alabama. She runs back to Brady and is like, Brady, I just ended my engagement because I think I love you. And he's like, I love you. And they're like, let's see if we can make this work. And she's like, cool. And then she finds out he actually has a girlfriend. And then when she asks him about it, he's like, well, did you have sex with anybody else? And she's like, me and Austin had sex twice. And he was like, well, because you've now had sex with someone who's not me, you're not wifey material anymore. Her heart is broken. I do want to say I don't understand being in a year and a half long relationship and having sex twice. Because she didn't like him at all. But what two days? She'd already had sex with Brady. So she was no longer a virgin. She was no longer carrying it around quite as protected, but it still mattered to her. She talks a lot about how much it matters to her in this book. She like only has sex in passionate situations. So with Austin, if she didn't love him, it was never an expression of love. It was just like a to-do. I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying though. What were the two days in that year and a half? His birthday and Valentine's Day. That's so weird. (laughs) No, I agree that it's fucking crazy to have sex with someone twice in a year. Maybe it was like the very end. They had sex once and she's like, okay, I think I can handle this. And then they had sex a second time. And she's like, I'm in love with my ex. (laughs) Yeah. And he was like, oh, is that what you say when you're coming? Or do we need to discuss what you just said? Obviously, her heart is broken by the fact that Brady essentially slut shames her. Meanwhile, he's been out fucking around. I mean, he cheated on her. He fucked like half the campus after they broke up. And she's just like, this double standard is fucking batshit. And this happens to coincide with her feminist awakening. This happens right around the time where she takes a course in women's studies and learns that feminism isn't evil. I found this chapter so endearing. She just takes a class and learns that feminism isn't like bra burning. It's a fight for equality. And she's like, oh my God, yes, I love equality. I also was very interested in what she was talking about, how it was just taken for granted that in college you would get a boyfriend and then you would marry that boyfriend and you would move wherever he wanted to go. And she was talking about how Austin was in construction and she's like, I could learn to be an interior designer so that I could have a job that supports his job and I could do it wherever. And she was prepared to be like, I'll be a wife on a farm. That's my life. So she was perfect for The Bachelor. But the thing is, she had gone in an internship in LA the summer before senior year. 
and loved it. There was part of her that didn't necessarily break up with Austin for Brady, but broke up with Austin for this feeling of like, I'm unfulfilled by this. And I don't think she had really put her finger on what it was that would fulfill her, but she knew it wasn't this safe, put one foot of the other and you go from the graduation to the altar. And that's And it. I really respect how hard it is to reject the status quo in your town. She says that after she and Austin broke up and then she and Brady also broke up, people around town were constantly running into her being like, oh, you're single and 22. You know what? You still have like two years to find someone. Her PE teacher goes, don't worry. You still have a couple years. You could have a husband and a kid within a few years. No problem. Her mom decides that the best way to handle this double-decker heartbreak is to sign up for another pageant. The Miss Alabama pageant is happening in two weeks. And they're like, I bet because you're so well-connected from your old pageant days, we could just get you in right under the wire. She signs up and lo and behold, she wins. And she won by being herself. She had her normal hair color, didn't have a coach. She answered the way she wanted to answer. Side note, she does mention that she is the skinniest she's ever been by 27 pounds. But it was the personality and the hair, I think, that really did it. So she has a year of Miss Alabama duties that wrap up with the Miss USA competition. And she decides to spend that year single as a Pringle. And then it's time to prepare for Miss USA. She is going through some shit at this point. With her reign as Miss Alabama wrapping up, she has no idea what's going to come next. If she doesn't win Miss USA, there's like nothing next. And she's not Miss USA. She doesn't even get top 15. I think she's out pretty early. She is pretty aimless after this. But luckily, it turns out someone else nominated her for The Bachelor and she gets a call days later asking if she wants to come audition in Atlanta. So she goes down to Atlanta and she starts watching the season just to catch herself up. And she's like, oh, Colton is a smoke show. I would only do it if it's Colton. She felt that his virginity was a signifier of how important faith was to him. And she's like, after the mistakes I made with Brady, I need somebody whose faith aligns with mine. Colton is the only person out there. So she goes in and she's like, I would do it, but only if it's Colton. She gets picked. She's on the season. She meets Colton and right off the bat is like, well, that wasn't the spark I was expecting. She says that up front, I said, just be honest with me. No matter what, just be honest with me. I'll be honest with you. Every time we hung out, there was a weird vibe. She's like, it never felt like he wanted to kiss me. And a lot of the girls were feeling it too. We were all like, is he that interested? But there's so many producers in your ear saying, trust the process. It's just a weird situation. And she was like, he had pinky promise that he'd be honest with me. You don't break a pinky promise. She really did keep being like, but I had asked him to be honest. So he couldn't have been lying. He ultimately breaks up with her right before hometowns. And I did watch the scene where he breaks up with her and it is tough. He kind of lets her go on and on about how strong she feels their relationship is. And then he's like, I also really like you, however, (laughs) and then kicks her to the curb. So then she has this famous limo exit that really redeems her in Bachelor Nation's eyes because she had spent that season kind of being a wild card that people did not love. And then in this limo exit, she's like, no, he said a lot of things to me that did not match his actions in the slightest. And I'm pretty upset that I feel lied to. Not that I've been dumped, but the fact that nothing about this felt honest. And doesn't she also say, I'm not going to settle for anything less than I deserve. I'd rather be single than accepting somebody who doesn't feel passionately about me every day. This sparks the Hannah Redemption arc. People are very excited about it. All of a sudden, there's a groundswell. Obviously, she wins everybody back. I think what's interesting is that they had already asked her to be the Bachelorette. She was asked to audition to be the Bachelorette for the next season the day she got dumped by Colton. Which is crazy when then you think... A few weeks later, she's watching everything play out and watching everybody come at her online and hate her and send her hate and death threats. And to think that the executives of The Bachelor were like, yeah, that's the girl people will rally behind. But they did. (laughs) 
They end up really liking the way she stands up for herself. And this creates a new persona for her. She comes into her own for a moment. Her friends and family are like, when you got back from The Bachelor, we saw you standing taller, standing more confidently. You really felt like you had found yourself. And of course, that goes right out the window the second she becomes The Bachelorette. And she has a team of people relying on her to make good television. And she feels just nonstop anxiety about it. So next begins this whirlwind trip of her life. She finds out she's a bachelorette at home in March. Straight away, they put her on a plane. They take her to the Ellen show. She is being whisked to do press right away. Then she runs into filming for the season. She finds out in March, the season wraps up in May. She finds out she's the bachelorette. And about that, she says, Lord, I don't understand why you've chosen me for this. I don't understand. Why me? I don't even know if I can handle this ride you're about to put me on. But I trust you. I trust that you know what you're doing. So please, please bless me through this ride. She says a few times that God wanted her to be the bachelorette. I know I'm not religious, so I shouldn't judge. But there's always something very funny to me to be like, God had a plan for me. And it was for me to be the bachelorette. Imagine God being like, not now, Sudan. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to plan this season. The last one was a flop. (laughs) Hannah Brown didn't make top four. And it's unheard of that a girl who doesn't have hometowns can be the bachelorette. (laughs) But my plans. She's the bachelorette. It is an absolute whirlwind experience. After the first night, she does admit that she did not believe her husband was in that pack, which I do find a little goofy on both both ends of the spectrum. Like it's goofy when all the guys come in and they're like, my future husband is in this room. But it's also goofy to be like, there's no way in hell my future husband is in this room. You have shared one peck on the cheek with every single person that just walked by. How could you know? This is why they can't have bachelorettes that are 24 because she's like, I didn't feel that initial spark of passion. And it's like, okay, well that initial spark of passion got you a cheating boyfriend, an abusive boyfriend, And then some guy that you hated. The most boring man alive. (laughs) And then Colton, who was gay. Like, maybe stop trusting your gut instinct. The four guys that she was mildly interested in were the final four. And those, of course, were Pilot Pete. Tyler C. Jed. And Luke P. P on him. Blah. The season is chaotic. She has the ups and downs. Apparently, she said that she wasn't going to have sex with anybody on the show. But then she got all horned up. I think when she is attracted to someone, she likes sex. And that's like hard for her to reconcile. Her and Pete, of course, obviously have sex four times. In the windmill. You know someone's close to the day they lost their virginity when they're like, we had sex eight times last weekend. And you're just like, okay. And it just is like very virgin adjacent for her to be like this horned up and surprised by how horny she is. Then... Three days later, she's with Jed for his fantasy suite, and they also boink, and she is shook. She, like, can't believe she just had sex with two people in one week, considering she's only had sex with two people in her entire fucking life. She had also only previously kissed her boyfriends. She had kissed five people coming to the bachelor house. So she cannot believe for the life of her that she's just had sex with two different people in one week, but she is hyper fixated on the fact that Jed feels safe. So she really leans into the fact that she feels that their lives would align perfectly. She felt a spark with him. She feels comfortable with him. She liked having sex with him. She didn't like it like she liked porking Peter, but she says it's like pretty good. She also says about Jed, he made a point of admitting to me earlier on that his primary reason for coming on The Bachelorette was not to find love, but to promote his career as a musician. He wanted to do anything he could to reach a bigger audience, he said. At first, I was a little shocked to hear that he hadn't come on the show for me like so many of the other guys had. But then he told me that I had taken him by surprise and he had fallen for me. 
Big time. I just thought that was so honest of him. The fact that he had been surprised by his own feelings and was willing to tell me the truth about what he was feeling made me trust him more than ever. And that trust went a long way with me. We disagree about this. I feel like it's a symptom of, of like her unhealthy romantic pattern that she picked the most full of shit guy at the room. I think that it's very easy when you're not being honest to paint a picture that they want to see. I still think that even that red flag, her dumb 24-year-old brain was like, wow, I won him over. He came for fame, but I'm even better than fame. And what should have been a bad sign she took as a small victory. I mean, I do think that that's what happened in that specific instance. But I think the overall reason that Jed won is because he was able to say everything she wanted to hear in every situation. And I hear you, but I think a healthier person and like a more mature person would be able to pick up on that. Yeah, but she was 24 years old dating 30 people over the course of eight weeks. I think you'd have to be incredibly healthy and incredibly mature person to like genuinely understand those red flags. The only red flags she understood were the ones in the next date, Luke who asks whether or not she's had sex with the other guys in a way to basically imply that if she had, he's deeply not okay with it. Because then their faith doesn't line up. She reacts very strongly to it. At first, I kind of felt like it was an overreaction, but I actually disagree. I think she reacted very well to it. But I think she reacted very intensely to it because she kind of agreed with him. I think she was partly projecting her own personal shame. And so part of how much she lashed out at him was she was lashing out at her own sense of guilt. Right. So those are the red flags that she was able to understand and stand up to. So then her fourth fantasy suite date was with Tyler Cameron. They just got along. She was like, we're not having sex. And he was like, gotcha. Noted. We won't have sex. She says it did get hot and heavy, but overall it was just like a really fun night to chat. And she had thought that she was going to send Tyler Cameron home after the fantasy suites. But because they had such a lovely chat, he ends up making the final two because of his powerful conversation skills. This is one of the most damning things I heard about Hannah Brown. If you think Tyler Cameron is a good conversationalist, you might actually be comatose. (laughs) So she ends up having to send Peter home. And he was absolutely shook by it because he's like, we just banged four times in a windmill. If that's not enough, what is? I also want to point out that she planned to keep the windmill sex a complete secret, but when she was screaming at Luke P, she like accidentally said it. So it's down to Tyler and Jed. And like I said, she felt that Jed was extremely safe. Tyler, she can't picture what their life would look like together. So she's like, it just has to be Jed. It makes so much sense for me to end up with Jed. She picks him. Jed gets down on one knee and she says her gut reaction was say no. But she said yes because it's television and she wanted to be good. Her be goodness came back in this couple months of enormous stress. So she gets engaged. Right after they get engaged, they get to have this weekend together in a chateau or some shit where they get to like be happily engaged together for a weekend before they're separated while the show starts airing and they're not allowed to be seen together. During that weekend, things immediately get tough. He finds out that she had sex with Peter and he's like, you said you weren't intimate with anybody except me. He repeated. I remember telling him at some point after our overnight date that he was the only one. I wasn't going to be with anybody else. But in the blur of everything, I couldn't remember even when I said it. No, Jed, I said, I told you that after our night, I knew it was you and I wasn't intimate with anyone after you. Uh, Anna, it sounds like you lied to the man. I'm not defending Jed, but it sounds a little semantic-y. Hannah does a couple things in this book where I'm like, if a man did that to you, you would be mad. She walks that line back and then kind of like throws it back in Jed's face, which I will say Jed is a villain. So it's like, fine. But she says that he asks whose wang was bigger, his or Peter's. And I'm just like, did he really? (laughs) And she's like, I didn't even remember. And I was like, you know. (laughs) She was like, the sex with Peter was way better. Size doesn't matter, but you do like know it. (laughs) 
So then he comes up to her right away and is like, hey, by the way, it turns out People Magazine is going to say some girl thinks she's dating me. And Hannah was like, okay. I mean, yeah, there's always some bullshit. Why are you even telling me? He's like, I don't even, I don't know. I don't even know why I'm telling you. Honesty. I love honesty. And then on this honesty train, they get to the airport to fly home. She sees his plane ticket and sees that Jed is named Jared. And she's like, wait a second. Am I engaged to someone who I didn't know was named Jared? (laughs) Then it turns out the girlfriend was legit. It wasn't some girl who thought they were boyfriend and girlfriend. It was some girl who he said, I will call you as soon as I get back from the show. I love you. Hannah's sad. She can't talk about it yet because the season hasn't aired and they can't admit that Jed won. So this controversy is on tape delay. But they do come and tape her breaking up with him almost immediately. And that's just on hold. And she's also really upset because ever since she picked Jed, she was like having regrets about Tyler and Peter. She kind of blames Jed. She says, by misrepresenting his intentions, he'd stolen the chance I had to find love with Tyler or maybe with Peter. It's unfair to them. If you didn't see it with them, then you didn't see it with them. I don't think you should marry somebody who could have been that easily swindled away from you. We have this a lot with Colton where she like really is pushing forward with it because she just feels like it makes sense. And then she does it again on The Bachelorette where she like picks the one that she feels makes sense. I think that Tyler or Peter, like you wouldn't have made it work for them because you weren't even honoring your own feelings. You were going with what makes sense. Everything she had with all of these guys was nonsense because she wasn't listening to herself. She also does make the point that when you are the lead of the show, you have all the power and there is no way you can enter a good relationship if one person has all the power. She reconnects with God. Or wait, does she have a falling out with God here? I can never remember where she is with God. Whenever she's busy, she loses God and then she gets overwhelmed and is like, if I had only had God that whole time. She has this realization about sex where she realizes that the Lord is not telling her in a big angry voice, don't have sex before marriage because I want it to be that way. It's a caution because he doesn't want her to get hurt. So she goes through this overwhelming period where the show is airing. All these things have happened behind the scenes that she can't talk about to anyone. She should have broken rules. It comes across pretty heavily throughout this book that she doesn't really have close girlfriends. Like if I went on The Bachelor and then I came back and I was warned to secrecy, like you guys know I would tell it on the Patreon, but like also I would at least tell Claire. (laughs) She felt like she was in a cage. She just couldn't talk to anyone. All these things had happened to her and she was bound by contract to not tell anyone. And I'm just like, contract means still tell someone. Meanwhile, she was being completely slut-shamed online. She says that her Christian following had really turned their back on them, that a podcast she had loved growing up was questioning her faith. Her kind of bread-and-butter fan base did not like that she was acting like a little hoe on TV. She says it was really compounded by the fact that because she didn't think she was going to be having sex, she was making a ton of sex jokes before the fantasy suites. So when they juxtaposed that with the fact that she did have sex with two people, it made it look like she didn't take sex seriously. And she's like, I took it so seriously. I only had sex with people that I had a very heavy emotional connection with but it didn't come across that way she felt pretty hurt by the edit and by the way people reacted so the show finishes airing things are not good she goes on after the final rose and has to see Jed again and she's like god this old weenie but she gets to see Tyler and Peter again and the feelings are still there Peter's about to be the bachelor so she's like I'm not going to bother him with my feelings but Tyler she asks him out on a date They end up hanging out that night. They think it's secretly in her apartment because they don't want to cause a stir with the paparazzi. They talk about their future. She thinks that things are headed in a really positive direction. And then he has to fly out to New York. And from New York, he calls her and is like, listen, I might have been a little hasty with that whole relationship talk. Let's kind of put this on pause and see where it goes. And she's like, can we talk about it? And he's like, yeah, maybe later. 
It turns out the thing that he has to hurry off the phone for is a date with Gigi Hadid, which she finds out about via the internet. She feels pretty hurt by it. She feels pretty thrown under the bus and he acts kind of blasé about it. He's like, well, you got to date 30 people while you figured out your shit. How come I can't date 30 people or even just one bachelorette and one supermodel while I figure out my shit? And she's like, um, definitely fuck off. So that really throws her for a loop that her like backup is no longer her backup. I think she really expected him to be like ready and waiting with open arms after she dumped him on television while he had a ring in his hand. And then also made him a superstar international. Luckily, she realizes that when things are bad, the best thing she can do is distract herself and she gets an offer for Dancing with the Stars and she's like, oh, perfect. I will put my body through immense torture in order to not think about my feelings right now. Her and Alan, her partner, do not get along. Off the dance floor, we were not compatible. We performed well together for sure, but we weren't really compatible in the rehearsal studio either. I felt like maybe the best way to get through all the drama was by talking about it. Maybe that could be good, right? Maybe I could channel some of those big feelings on stage. But after sharing something really personal with Alan, there were times when he would just blow me off. He didn't even ask about my bachelor stuff. I would tell him everything whether he asked or not so he could understand why I seemed to be crying for no reason. But he never asked me about any of it himself until a week before the finale in the context of filming a scene for the show. So it felt like we were on pretty different frequencies. He didn't even care about my feelings. Yeah, he didn't even care about my boy troubles. So she wins the mirror ball, spoiler alert, and it sucks. I went to hold up my trophy, the glorious mirror ball trophy. I'd prepared for the weight of the shimmering gold-plated trophy to find it weightless. It looked so pompous and grand on the outside, but it was hollow inside. And doesn't that just symbolize the whole experience for me? I'm glistening beautifully as I twirl on the dance floor, but I'm really empty and in a million pieces as I fall from the hollow high. Is that the lyrics to mirror ball or no? But in the meantime, during Dancing with the Stars, she was also contractually still obligated to The Bachelor. So anytime they wanted to call her in for Pete's season, she had to. And one of the things she had to do was give him back his little pilot wings that he gave her on her night one. And she comes in to talk to them at one point and he takes her aside and is essentially like, look, I'll leave all of this right now. If you know that you want to be with me, I'll get out of here. And she was like, I can't guarantee it. So stay. (laughs) She has that real what if feeling. And right after Peter gets off his season, he calls her and they sort of rekindle this phone relationship. He's engaged, but he's already unhappy. And then, as we know from Peter's season, he like really worked his way through his final four. I guess they were perfect for each other. They both like kind of picked one for the cameras and then were like, and now I'm going to backtrack through the lineup and see if I misplaced my judgment. So he calls her and he's like, me and Hannah Ann are already not doing well. I'm thinking about leaving her for Madison. And Hannah's like, oh, Madison, did you mean Hannah? Oh, okay, no, Madison. Good idea. So he leaves for Madison. That flops almost immediately. And then they're at a party together. Hannah Goodwin and Dylan something had an engagement party. She sees like all her finalists there except Tyler. And she and Peter kind of figure out a way to rendezvous in the car so that people don't see them talking too long because they don't want to like start rumors. They're not ready to commit to anything. She goes in the car with him. He drives her home. They talk the whole way. And then he's like, why don't you just come to my house, a.k.a. his parents' house? So they go to his parents' house and he's like, why don't you just sleep over? So they bang in his childhood bedroom. But first she had to talk to his mom alone. She's like, he goes up to sleep and just leaves me in the kitchen with his mom. The next morning they wake up. The sex, she says, had been not that great. And then the second it was over, they fell asleep and she really regrets it. She wakes up to him getting dressed to go fly a plane. And he's like, hey, my dad's downstairs. He can't wait to chat with you. And she's like, okay. So it's just a walk of shame in his parents' kitchen. As he's leaving, he hands her a $100 bill and says, you can get yourself an Uber. 
Jesus fucking Christ. That is a low point, but it's also one of those things where she like really in her heart of hearts can't believe that men misrepresent themselves for camera. In her defense, to go from having 30 men who have never met you be willing to marry you to be handed a $100 bill and say, you can get an Uber. My dad's making you coffee. That is quite the steep fall. Later that day, he texted her about his feelings for Madison. She was like, what the fuck? So now it's February 2020. You guys may remember the one. Hannah sees a tweet from Tyler C. saying, pray for my mom. They haven't spoken in months, but she's like, hey, I saw the tweet. Me and Tyler's mom had always been close. She had always sent me Instagram DMs, so I just wanted to send a hello. She finds out that Tyler's mom had had a brain aneurysm, and at this point... She was on life support, and they were going to have to remove that life support. Around that same time her brother overdoses and she has to fly home because he's also on a ventilator. He'd overdosed on fentanyl, which is ravaging drug using communities right now. And it really could have gone the other way. Luckily, her brother survives. Tyler's mom does not. So they're both going through these very traumatic experiences and kind of leaning on each other. And they find out there's about to be a lockdown. So she gets there thinking she's going to go for like three days. And it turns out that they've now put travel restrictions on everybody and she's stuck there for like a month. She says she spends over 20 days sharing a bed with Tyler and kind of wondering if things are about to heat up between them. They never hook up. I will say he had just lost his mom very suddenly and she is sitting there like, what is our relationship going to be? In a situation where it's like he's just lost his mother, which is tragic. They're now in a global pandemic, the likes of which nobody has ever seen before. And she's just like, okay, but what are we? (laughs) Am I annoying you? (laughs) She does have a couple like therapy nuggets in here. I don't think she like still understands what happened, but she does write two unhealthy people do not make for a healthy relationship. I had to get honest with myself. I saw the good in him, but my relationship with Tyler was not good for me. So they keep texting a little bit. And eventually I told him that I couldn't really be friends with him anymore. It just hurts me too much, I said. And he says, well, if you rock with me, you rock with me. If you don't, you don't. And they haven't spoken since then. I guess it's kind of nice that she was left without any what ifs. Like she had all these questions. What if I'd picked Tyler? What if I'd picked Peter? And she now knows her relationship wouldn't have worked with either of them. But in the process, she had to learn a lot. She's gone home to Alabama after leaving the quarantine crew. And she says she's drinking a lot. She goes to the beach with her family and her friends. And at 11 a.m., she starts drinking and she never really stopped. While on my Instagram live that night, I drunkenly read a comment asking me to do a TikTok dance. In the moment, I couldn't think of any that I knew except for kind of knowing the dance to Rockstar. So I put the music on and tried to remember the dance and all the lyrics, all in real time, on IG Live, with thousands and thousands of people watching. That's when I mindlessly and ignorantly recited a word in the lyrics that should have never come out of my mouth. I sang the N-word. She talks a lot about realizing what she did understanding the impact of it. She said she went ahead and hired an ethnic studies professor to teach her about her own internalized racist tendencies, especially about the history of race in America, considering she was from the South. And so her education of it was bad. But I don't know, this chapter still felt a little deflecty to me. I think she tried her hardest to be honest, but I think that bringing up the drinking so heavily and like really qualifying it with that. Well, it was funny because when I was reading that, I had forgotten about that. And I was like, what is she setting us up to read? What is going to happen at the end of this drinking binge? I admire her for not leaving it out of the book, honestly, because she says people were like, just don't include that. And she's like, no, I can't sleep it under the rug. It was an important learning experience. But I also still feel like the fact that it's like this white girl's learning experience is 
tough. It's like a tough way to have it framed. Coming from two white bitches. But this is the end of the book. She starts to go to therapy and it changes everything for her. Even though my parents don't believe in therapy, I'm not living their lives and I'm allowed to do what's best for me. And she seeks out a therapist and she's really proud of herself. It's really helped her start breaking toxic habits and reflecting on patterns. And it was actually the first time she was ever encouraged to talk about the murder of her cousins and aunt. And how hard that trauma affected a lot in her life. And this book was the first time she ever opened up about it. She finally comes to the conclusion, I am enough. I am loved. No more, no less. That's all that matters. And to really believe that, well, that's the goal. So what do we think about Hannah B? I think that there is definitely a certain person who could pick up this book and get a lot out of it. She comes from a very different background than me. She has very different like internal struggles than I do. We have very different personalities. But I do think that... As far as memoirs that had no reason to be written go, this one was like not bad. I felt like she had a couple interesting stories to tell. I mean, I think that she could help people. I think she also gave us a good balance of reflection and dish. She like did spill on her time in The Bachelor, which I respect and appreciate. Overall, those are some award-winning dimples. Let's move on to her nemesis. Do we rock with him or do we don't? Tyler Cameron, who thinks you deserve better. Dear, sweet, handsome Tyler Cameron and his memoir, You Deserve Better, subheader, what life has taught me about love, relationships, and becoming your best self. Tyler Cameron was born January 31st, 1993. Can I say something about this book? I already feel like the cover is gaslighting me. I feel like the way he's telling me I deserve better, it's like he's breaking up with me, but trying to convince me that it's the right thing for all of us. It's a photo that makes you feel like you're sitting next to him and he's smiling at you like it was your idea. So Tyler Cameron, a.k.a. Tyler C. One thing that I think is really funny about Hannah B. and Tyler C. is that they're like looking for love and referring to their first name, last initial status. I don't think they were like lying in bed quietly. And he was like, I do. I love you, Hannah B. I think they are. And she was like, I love you, Tyler C. I think they were. (laughs) So Tyler C. wrote a book partially. Tyler C. wrote some of a book and then he just like couldn't finish it. And he really pawned the rest off. There are 11 chapters in this book. But after every chapter is a letter from a friend, a family member, or a high school guidance counselor. A letter to us. The contents are called The Real Tyler, according to his dad, according to his friend Molly. I mean, it was already a big fonted book, and he could still (laughs) only write half of it. And then even within that, there was about eight events total that happened throughout the course of his life that he spoke about six or seven times. We just kept circling back. It reminded me of cursive. We were getting forward in the word, but we were circling back to the letter beforehand. (laughs) So here is the timeline of events that we get into. We have his childhood. His childhood is mostly, he had two younger brothers. His parents were in a very rocky relationship. They got divorced twice, actually. They separated once and got divorced the second time. He claims that they were deeply in love, but it was just like the kind of toxic love where you can't stay married two times in a row and you yell at each other. And actually his dad did some things that were so horrible. They were unspeakable in the book and most people would have never forgiven him. But Tyler sees he's changed. Yeah, he is an alcoholic. But that's love sometimes if you really squint at it. His parents did have the kind of love that people look at and they say that's the kind of love we want, except for we want our love to be the kind where we like each other too. Unfortunately, his parents didn't have that. Then we go through his school years. He dates a girl in middle school. Things don't work out. And he swears off of love. He's like, I was the most romantic, happy to be in a relationship boy. 
But as soon as that didn't work out, I was like, listen, relationships, they ain't for me. Unforge in high school, he gets struck by the love bug again. He gets another girlfriend. Once again, they break up and he says, all right, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I am never dating again. And he fools around a bunch throughout high school. He gives a pretty interesting insight into his high school. He's like, I went to a school where you just fuck a lot. Going to college was a good time for me to stop and reflect because the people at my college did not party the way the people at my high school did. He ended up going to Wake Forest to play football. His dad, even though he was somewhat absentee, he was a house builder and he lost everything in the recession. He was super hard on Tyler, like taking him to school at 5 a.m. so that he can do two hours extra of working out. He was really into football. He was super disciplined about it. And his dad was like, football is life. You fucking succeed or you kill yourself trying. So he... Ends up playing at Wake Forest where he's the backup QB. Then after he's worked so hard and the current starting QB graduates, a new coach comes in and he's like, fuck, all progress I had lost. The new coach has it out for him. He just does not like Tyler at all. Tyler said it's because the coach never gives him a chance and never really watches him play. But it's weird because Tyler's also like, I was the hardest worker out there. He did a red shirt year so that he could be even stronger. And he's like, I worked harder than everybody around. But he just wouldn't look. He wouldn't see me. Yeah, I was partying on the weekends, but I was also working hard. So anyway, he ends up transferring to FAU. He ends up getting fully cut from Wake Forest. He doesn't just like choose to transfer on a whim. The coach brings him into his office and it's like, there is literally no space for you on this team because I hate you. So he's like, well, I'm not just going to stay at Wake Forest and hang out. So he transfers so that he can play football at FAU. He is not the quarterback, but they're like, I don't know, try some positions, see what fits. He also takes the rejection from Wake Forest as a time to redouble his commitment to the game. He stops partying as much. He cuts out girls and all he does is lift weights and get jacked. But then he does meet a girl named Mariah when he's at FAU. She's nearby. So they stay together and they end up having this sweet little relationship. So he finishes out his time at FAU and they say, you know, you have some real NFL potential. So he starts viewing that as an opportunity to be a professional football player. But he doesn't get drafted. So he doesn't know what to do, but he gets picked up to be a practice person for the Ravens. They cut him. He spends the whole year working out and getting as jacked as humanly possible so that in spring training he could get picked up again. And he does. And then he gets cut Again, and then gets picked up like a third and final time. And on his very first practice game, he dislocates his shoulder and he knows that his NFL career is over just like that. Luckily, his dad, who had pushed him his whole life because he himself had been cut from the NFL, was there watching him. He knew what had happened. He knew that his career was over. They put him in a car. It's just him and his dad. And they end up driving all the way to Zion National Park from Florida. They're like, we just drove. We knew that things were bad. So they just hit the road on that ride at a motel Mariah calls and breaks up with him. So he's having a bad week. You'll never believe it, but it turns out he was a horrible boyfriend to her the whole time. He says he didn't realize that you also had a given relationship. You can't just take that Mariah, I guess, after college, just moved in with him and was basically his little wife, just waiting for him to fulfill his dreams and that he was grumpy and mean to her and hitting on other girls. And she finally just couldn't take it. He gives us a lot of good accountability text, TBD, if he actually believes it. And then... He goes to Zion National Park. He climbs up a mountain. It is a one-day hike. It's the greatest thing he's ever accomplished. He can't believe that he conquered his fears of heights and just put one foot in front of the other to achieve anything. He goes back home to Florida where he gets his general contractor's license and an MBA. He's trying to figure out what's next when he also decides to apply for the bachelorette. He gets in. The rest is history. Except for after the bachelorette. When he... Goes on a date with Gigi Hadid. Yeah. As you guys heard from Hannah Brown's side, she, he says that she reached out to him. He went. They had fun. They didn't have sex. 
he said, you broke my heart publicly in front of everybody. I literally was going to propose to you. And you said no to me. I'm allowed to date around. And I did. I went on a date. He does a lot of like armchair reflection in this book. I don't know what to call it. It feels very like exactly what you're supposed to say in every situation. So this book is very dry. You don't get any real opinion. I mean, throughout this book, he gives you glimpses of actual things that happened. I mean, we have this volatile childhood. When he went to The Bachelor, his dad was very sick and he talks about how that affected him and he almost didn't even go. After The Bachelor, his mom dies of a very sudden aneurysm and he mentions it like in passing. He also doesn't say what it was. He just says, I don't know where my mom died suddenly. And that's kind of all you get about it. Do you know what this book feels like? A guy who, when he was a senior in high school, thought he knew everything. And then he goes to college and he's like, oh my God, I did not know anything when I was in high school. I do know everything now though. And so then he goes back and talks to a friend who's a senior in high school and is like, listen, you think you know everything? Let me tell you what you need to know. But then it was also interspersed with these love letters to Tyler from his friends that felt like, honestly, a bachelor application. It felt like a hometown visit. And he has like an entire chapter on the rules of consent. He really addresses his woke king status, and he comes back even wokier, kingier, where he's like, how do I feel about being the woke king? Sad that the bar is so low that basic <laughs> things like treating women with respect and asking for consent makes me an incredible icon to the ladies. What I wish? I wish I lived in a world where I wasn't a king. I was a peasant. I was a woke peasant because I'm hardly a hero. But if you're going to say it. Do you know who's the real heroes? The women. With a Y. I respect all of them. Not any of the girlfriends I treated shitty. And not all those girls I fucked for years. And not Hannah, who I made to think I was about to be her boyfriend and then left in the dirt as soon as Gigi Hadid came calling. The other women that I don't know, I want good things for. I think he like went too far with his woke king shit in this book, he really leans into the fact that when he was on The Bachelorette, it was about Hannah's journey and all he cared about was making sure Hannah had the journey that she needed to have. And I agree and disagree. I do think a lot of times the guys on the show or like whoever isn't the lead, they'll get very self-centered and be like, this is all about me and I need my time and I need my confirmation from them. And it's like, it is the lead's journey. But also at the end of the day, there's going to be two people engaged. So it is two people's story. So can I tell you a little bit about the history of Tyler Cameron's romantic side? Because of my parents' relationship, I think in some ways my heart has been broken since I was a kid. That's probably part of why I watched and loved R&B videos so much when I was growing up. Because they showed me this dream of romance that was everything I've wanted. He brings up R&B videos a lot. They were really his role models for what true love looks like. He says, I'm a pretty lovey-dovey person, a softie who loves all the romantic stuff. I can't help it. From reading this book, I'm suspecting that he's the kind of guy who loves displays of affection, but doesn't offer any real support anywhere. I think he like buys girls flowers and takes them out to dinner and gives them compliments, but like doesn't listen to anything they're saying. Yeah, I don't think he's smart. I don't think you have to be smart to listen to what your partner needs. Can I read this statement that I love? Yeah. This is in the chapter called PSA to all men. Oh, I love that chapter because I can think of how many men are probably going to read this. So he's talking about when he talks to women and the things they can't do, like go for a hike at night alone, go camping or spend time alone, wear what they want, go dancing, go for a jog with headphones on or alone, implement lasting political change. <laughs> As I read through everyone's words, a heavy feeling settled over me. These were such simple, simple desires, things all people should be able to do. And yet so many female identifying people don't feel comfortable exercising them. This realization made me feel terrible. For one, I'd taken this privilege for granted most of my life. 
So then he goes on to be like, I know now that my voice is needed to help initiate that change to make this world a more equal place. Because it's never the duty of any oppressed party to teach everyone else about it. I mean, he really leans into this character. When he's talking about his relationship with Mariah, he talks about his shortcomings in the relationship and the things he did wrong, which was not be there for her, not listen to her, not reciprocate emotionally at all. And he says, I didn't confront our issues head on or do anything to reassure her. Instead, I did one of the worst things you can do in a relationship. And I was like, oh, good Lord, what did he do? And he says, I just let it drag on, even when it became clear that breaking up would be the best thing for both of us. You know, I am in love with him, though. Tell me. Because he has this whole section about how much he loves the marathon and how much he loves running. Even if running isn't your thing, it can still make you feel good. For anyone who has anything negative and nasty going on in their life, my advice to you is this. Go to a marathon. Don't go run a marathon. Just go watch one. A marathon is one of the most heartwarming things you will ever see. You have people cheering for strangers they've never met, yelling for them, and hyping them up. And I have to say... That's true. I fucking agree. I love a marathon. You guys know that's like my favorite day of the year in New York City. He also loves his boys. He's best friends with Matt James, who was later The Bachelor. They met at Wake Forest. Matt James went there. And then when Tyler was pursuing modeling... He ended up moving in with Matt James. It's like unclear if this happened before or after he was on The Bachelor, but he lives with Matt James. Matt James lived in a lofted bed and Tyler lived in a bean bag underneath that bed. And they just spent eight months like that. And then the third roommate was like, I know who he is. I know that he's rich. And they moved out and they're like, now we live in a 50th story, floor to ceiling window, luxury apartment. Yeah. Why were you sleeping on a bean bag? <laughs> Can I read one of my favorite quotes? Yeah. This is why I believe men can't have therapy because they don't actually use it to get better. They just use it to like gaslight us better. And they just use it to like verbalize emotions. They don't use it to treat you better. They just use it to excuse their actions. After reflecting on everything I learned from Mariah, I stopped being a finger pointer and started being a thumb pointer. He just like read a bunch of self-help books and like smooshed them all together he is a rise and grind twitter tweet put on a background of a sunset on instagram like that's his whole personality he's nothing but a motivational quote that kind of doesn't make sense maybe it was like google translated from arabic <laughs> that's why i love him anyway since there wasn't much here in the book we brought on two guests i'm so so excited about having today they have a hilarious podcast about the bachelor called love to see it they are amazing. We were so lucky to have them. Give it up for Emma Gray and Claire Fallon. Welcome. Thank you guys so much for joining us to talk about the sweet angel puppy dog himself, Tyler Cameron. So you guys watch a lot more Bachelor than we do. What were your overall thoughts on Tyler before you open this book? I'm just going to be honest here. When Tyler talks in the book about how everyone was like, oh my God, Tyler Cameron is a feminist icon. He's talking about us. We love Tyler. <laughs> Tyler was such a sweetheart on the show. It's true that a lot of the guys on the show are just such obnoxious lunkheads that like whenever a guy is like, let's respect the independence of the woman we're here to date. There's a little bit of swooning that happens. I think we were both big Tyler fans. Tyler was sort of positioned on Hannah Brown's season of The Bachelorette as the foil to the main antagonist of the season, Luke P, who was essentially a cartoon misogynist. If Luke P wrote a memoir, <laughs> it would be like, 
everything that I know about forcing women to remain virgins until they're married to me. To me specifically, they will all marry me. So after reading this book, do you feel that in any way this book diverged or added to the Tyler C narrative at all? Or was it just like a remix of more of the same? The experience (laughs) of reading this book was like having information just float through one side of my brain and then directly like flood out into a bucket on the other side. And then you look down in the bucket and you're like, there's not even any liquid there. (laughs) There's nothing there. I have a question. This book was, if you include the Q&A, which I think was just like a Twitter Q&A that he included in the book. We need to discuss the Q&A. We will. But this book, including the Q&A, is 271 pages. If he had only repeated each sentence once, I think that if he had just stated each thought concisely, how many pages do you think it would have been? Oh, this is like 17 pages of thoughts that have been spread out into 271 pages. If you took a shot for every time he talked about getting cut from a football team, like the same football team, team. you would have alcohol poisoning. The narrative (laughs) led us up to that exact moment when he injures his shoulder like seven different times. And I was like, I'm sorry, didn't we already do this part of the story? Okay, this is one major issue I have with this book is that there is no narrative pacing. I'm like, (laughs) he just railed through his entire bachelorette experience in like chapter four. And then we come back to it. Not much is added except the fact that there are several scenes of him ordering food at various restaurants in Greece. Maybe he cries once. He cries a couple times. Where is the narrative tension? Like your your ghostwriter needed to work a little harder on this one. Can I tell you something also, which I found interesting, despite the fact that he went over the same three or four events over and over again, 10 times we get the breakup with Mariah, cut from the Ravens, landed in The Bachelor. I still could not 100% tell you the order of events. I'm like not really sure when he moved to New York City. When did he beat Matt James? There's four years that we talked about for 200 pages and I do not know when they happened. (laughs) I mean, I found it impossible to retain a single detail from this book. I read it twice. He's giving you a lot of stuff multiple times, but then other stuff, not at all. And then he'll be like at one of my modeling gigs. And I'm like, I'm sorry, are you modeling? Like, when did that happen? What happened to like four years somewhere in between college and this when you're trying out for the NFL? When I was trying out for the NFL and getting my MBA and I was like, (laughs) wait, what? Those were simultaneous. (laughs) And I was a general contractor and also I was a model. Here's what I think in general about Bachelor memoirs. I think people forget that most of the time when you're on The Bachelor, it's because you're just like living a boring life in a boring town, but you're also very hot. And so then you just like get to go on TV. (laughs) And so when you read these memoirs, it's like, okay, your story is your time on a television show. Like, I actually don't care about your high school experience. I don't want a single Bachelor memoir to be written unless you are willing to spill the tea. Give me some insight yes. in into your actual experience of mm-hmm. the thing that people know you for. Yeah. This book is just an advertisement for Tyler's brand. And like, those are the two kinds of Bachelor memoirs, the juicy ones. And then there are like a million Bachelor self-help books, the message of which is, you know me, I'm amazing. Mm -hmm. Don't you want to be like me? Have you considered that if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. And also 
Shoot for the moon, because even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. That's not what he says. Okay, so he did not write that. He wrote, shoot for the stars, and if you miss, you'll land in the moon. (laughs) And I was like, that's not (laughs) right, Tyler. He says, there's a saying that my middle school teachers loved, shoot for the stars. If you don't make it, you'll land on the moon. He butchered the hell out of that. Oh my God, that's (laughs) egregious. An editor really should have caught that. (laughs) I feel like it's like a funny white man take on it. Like a 6'3 quarterback most beautiful man to be like, listen, if you just try something, you'll land in the best spot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just like do something and suddenly you'll be like the most famous and beloved man to ever be on a reality show. Like, (laughs) can we all go around and just give very quickly all of our favorite Tyler quotes from this book? One of my favorite things that made me laugh was at the beginning of the book when he's talking about his parents' relationship and how hard it was for him to see his mom start dating somebody other than his father. He says, but it's weird how sometimes little things can hit you and change your perspective. The first time I heard the lyrics to a Drake song where he asks, who the fuck wants to be 70 alone? I was like, oh shit, I got it. My mom was only after what we all want. She just wanted someone to care about her. (laughs) Drake did that for him. Drake's really insightful. I think that actually the first part of the book that I felt the urge to stop and read like a full paragraph to my poor husband was on page 10 in the prologue when he's climbed to the top of a mountain and is experiencing a rebirth. At the top of the mountain, I play this song, Remedy by Zach Brown Band. It's a beautiful song about how you get what you give. Quote, I've been thinking about the mark that I'll be leaving been looking for a truth I can't believe in, dot, dot, dot. As I look down, my first thought is, holy shit, I'm up here. I made it. I was like, wow, (laughs) I'm just really getting some incredible insights from this writing already. I'm learning about good song lyrics that can be inspiring. I'm learning how you get to the top of a mountain. And it's like, you did that. I just want to call out, look, this one's maybe a little bit less insightful, but I did feel like I really learned something about Tyler from this. He gets asked a lot of really burning questions and he very generously at the end of the book takes the time to, to answer the questions that are on everyone's mind. Q, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? A, I'd teleport. First, I would teleport everywhere in Florida. I loved that. I mean, everywhere in the world. I know there is life outside of Florida. And then I would teleport to a bank vault. Just kidding. I don't know why people would ever pick flying or x-ray vision or invisibility. No, you want to teleport. It's obviously the best. I think that's my favorite section. I wasn't sure if you were going to say that one or Q, would you rather burp farts or fart burps? A, I'd rather fart burps. Wouldn't everyone? I hope so. I actually agree with him there. I can't imagine wanting to burp farts. I can't believe we all have different favorite cues because the one I would have picked would be if you could only watch one movie for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, I did love this one. (laughs) Hitch. (laughs) I Uh say this because in college I didn't have cable, but I had four DVDs and Hitch was one of them. I fell asleep to it nearly every night. (laughs) So good. Mine is definitely the first one. Q, what's your favorite emotion? I mean, first of all, what kind of question? Like he wrote these Qs and then he gave these A's. And that is like, everyone wants to know this. Everyone's been asking what my favorite emotion is. Like emotions tell you what the favorite one is. Like everyone's favorite emotion 
emotion is to be happy. Like, what are you talking about? Is somebody like, I like being angry. <laughs> is this like, I like that feeling when you're really, really hungry and you finally get some food and, and you're so hungry. It makes you do a little happy dance while you're eating. Can I say, I don't think that's an emotion. I think getting a meal when you're hungry is not an emotion. Being satiated is not an emotion. I feel like that's why he and Gigi got along so well. Because he was like, you know, the best feeling in the world is when you've been starving yourself and then you give yourself a couple almonds. (laughs) (laughs) They really bonded over that. Do you guys know what he's up to right now? He ended up being in a relationship for a while. At the end of this book, he's like, it's just, I'm not in a time in my life to be dating right now. I'm just being single. So by the time that the book came out, I think, and we read this, he was in a pretty serious relationship. I feel lied to. Oh my God. But it's over now. She dumped him. They were dating when this book came out. He was dating this model, Camila Kendra. And I actually went to a Watch What Happens Live taping when he was on the press circuit and was in the audience when he was a guest and his girlfriend Camilla was in the audience. So I was like sitting right behind Matt James and Camilla and Tyler was like waxing so poetic about their love. And it was the best relationship ever. And like, this is just the culmination of all the things he learned in this book. And then they literally broke up like one or two weeks after that appearance. Yeah. I think she (laughs) broke up with him. So maybe he meant every word. (laughs) I don't know. Well, maybe she read the book and was like, I can't, I, I, this is over. I can't be with this person. Do you have any comments on the trajectory of where bachelor nation is going? I feel like they're really lost their footing. Do you think there's a chance they can figure it out and come back stronger? Or do you think we're seeing like the end of a, of an era? They're like doubling down right now. We're having multiple bachelorettes two years in a row. Next year, I think we're going to have two bachelors. It's nonstop bachelor content. So ABC definitely sees a future for this show. I think the truth is that far as the network is concerned, even a decline in viewership still means that it's a really, really popular network show. And so Mm -hmm. I think that they would rather just take the bet on having a consistently perhaps lower audience, but like still hit show on all the time rather than even try to sort of reclaim perhaps the cultural mantle that they, that they had before. Um, But it's a lot. (laughs) I feel like it was always a pretty cheap show to produce even like with the travel and whatever. But now with the pandemic, I feel like they've figured out how to make it even feel like it's almost just like a free show at this point. And they're like, why would we not keep doing it? (laughs) can't help but think that the decline in ratings has something to do with the fact that they're just on one resort the whole time and like people want to see the travel thing that it ruined for me now that they're all in one place all the time is my favorite parts of the bachelor where after a rose ceremony when the bachelor bachelorette would announce where they were going next and everyone would like cheer but a lot of times it would be somewhere fucking weird like with chris souls this season when they're like (laughs) and we're going to iowa and all the girls had to be like Yes, I can't wait to see Iowa. (laughs) You know what I think spoiled me? I I got spoiled by watching Courtney Robertson's season this year because I prepped for interviewing her by watching it and seeing the way they used to condense it into one hour, like one tight hour over 12 episodes. I was like, you have been abusing me for far too long. When I saw the inflation rate of a single episode of The Bachelor, I was like, at some point I have to put my goddamn foot down and say no. 
I deserve like, a Monday night. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, like physical. Abuse. I know. Like I've gotten accustomed to having a pounding headache by the end of an episode. And like, that's not healthy. It shouldn't be that way. <laughs> I wanted to know what you guys, in your expert opinions, would change to sort of revive The Bachelor a little bit. Like, what are the things that you think they could do to jazz it up a little for modern days? The show could take some cues from some of the newer reality dating shows that have come out and kind of made a splash. Like, I really loved F-Boy Island, which was obviously created by... Elon Gale, who spent years being an executive producer on The Bachelor. So in a lot of ways, it was sort of in conversation with and like taking cues from that show. Um, And something that they did that I really loved is that they allowed the leads to do some like social media stalking of the guys that they had left once they got down to a certain amount. And I feel like introducing something like that from the outside world or like introducing sort of like modern dating strategies into the show could be really fun. Bring back room raiders. Let Let them raid the room. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Raid the room searching for their bachelor strategy binder like Caitlin and Tasha did. Just like let them search themselves for these people's potentially like misogynist or racist tweets from five years ago. Yeah, that would have saved Becca, right? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like they're also just like flailing around a little bit right now, like picking leads with Clayton. Now they've picked this guy from Michelle's season and started taping like before her season even aired. And then we saw his arc and everyone was like this guy, like they didn't even wait to see if the audience would be into him. And they're just kind of, I think they were so desperate to have a nice white football player from the Midwest again, that they just like grabbed one and they were like this one. And I feel like they need to maybe like take a few deep breaths and like recenter themselves and be like, what if we picked one of this wonderful top four gentlemen that Michelle has, like we usually do, even though they're all black, like probably one of them would be a really great bachelor. They're just like, trying to pacify their, you know, white Christian evangelical fan base. This is the problem is you have to decide which one you want to lean into. Exactly. After they forgave Caitlin Bristow and had Hannah Brown, they were like, okay, we actually do (laughs) want to do sex positivity. So we're going to pick Katie. And then they were like, also though, we want you guys to know we, we still think sex is wrong and no one should do it. And so we're going to have another Midwestern Christian. And like, also though, we think (laughs) that like, we're not racist. And it's like, okay, why don't you guys just like pick good leads? (laughs) I feel like, okay, this is my controversial take. I know that there has to be high stakes, but the proposal thing is so aggressive. And I hate watching like a room full of 24 year olds be like, I'm so ready to be married. All I want is to be married. Even weirder than like dating 20 people at a time is like the 20 people being like, she is my wife. I don't know. Why can't you guys just like each other and see what happens from there? The problem is that the proposal and the like fucking like fetishization of marriage was the defining feature of The Bachelor from the first moment that it went on the air. Like that is how this show has always chosen to define itself and separate itself from other dating shows. And so I think it's really hard for them to get away from that. And there is such a like conservatism kind of baked Mm -hmm. into it that I think that's part of why they're sort of flailing around. 
I think they actually need to do the opposite thing. I think they need to double down and be like, the finale is a wedding. That's what I was going to say. Like, you show up ready to get married. Yeah. Like, okay, yes. you're looking for your husband. You're ready to get married. You've never been more ready in your life to get married. Fucking prove it. No, you're right. That should be the show. And it would be so much even more high stakes because then they would have to like fly the families out to the final destination, like both families. And then like you would get on your knee and propose and then they would be like, no. And then you'd have your whole family like in Zurich being like, I guess we're not going to a wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Your whole family is like sitting in a church in Zurich and they're waiting for you and your bride to walk in. And instead it's just you like like, calling out like (laughs) sobbing. Oh, But see, I think we are seeing this new generation of marriage-obsessed shows that are more diverse in their past and more committed to marriage. It's like, what if you open your mind to be more diverse about who's actually on the show and more liberal about stuff like sex, but then you're just like, to compensate for that, we're going to go really hard on marriage. I think (laughs) that could be a I love this. And you have to age everybody up, which I think would actually match the viewership of The Bachelor. I think you say- (laughs) I think part of what worked about like, who was the crazy one who fed her dog wine from Love is Blind? You get a 35-year-old woman who's like from the Midwest and is like, I cannot be single another day. This is my last chance at love. (laughs) And then she'll get married and you believe that she's going to make it work. I feel like that's... You don't need a 22-year-old who's an Instagram model being like, when's it my turn? No more girls who got dumped at prom being like, will it never work out? (laughs) I want a woman who's like, I have seven eggs left. (laughs) We need to get married tonight. Oh my God. What is, what are your takes on the Jared and Ashley Iconetti relationship? Our personal feeling is he obviously did not like her once. And then he saw his stock fall where he noticed she was taking her communications degree and just soaring through the skies. And he was like, (laughs) fuck, I guess this is a promotion. I think he saw it as a promotion at a job he hates, but he needs the benefits. And now they're opening that coffee shop. <laughs> I like thought they were going to pretend she couldn't have a baby for a really long time. Like what's the opposite of stealthing? Like you're putting condoms on in the middle of sex so that he could get out in five or six years and find a new different rich wife. I cannot believe they're having a child together. I cannot believe they're opening a business together. What are your thoughts there? I just think it's such bad PR for people who are are convinced that one day their best friend is going to wake up and be in love with them. I'm like, yeah, I think that's, that's not, always been my biggest concern with, with the, uh, the generalization of their narrative. I, I definitely, when they talk about it, I get the sense that that's sort of similar in a slightly less cynical way to what happened, which is like, he was like, no, I want to like do this, do that. Like Ashley's always here. She's my best friend. We hang out, whatever. Sometimes we hook up, no big deal. And then something happened, what happened that led the, him to think that she like- started She started dating someone else. Yeah. Okay, what yeah. happened? Because people always forget because The Bachelor has decided to erase Bachelor Winner Games from our collective memories. But I will never uh, forget. I love Bachelor Winner Games. I loved it. I ate that shit up. I was obsessed with Winner Games, especially because <laughs> it took like the problems of the Bachelor and like exacerbated oh, it was them because delightful. it was like I really think people on The Bachelor can find love because they share this same value of like I want to go on TV and find love and that's like a strong personality trait so they are similar people but one of the biggest issues is that people like don't always want to move and so when you're in this place and you're like one person wants to live in Chicago and one person wants to live in Iowa or LA or whatever like that's kind of what broke up Kendall and Joe supposedly is that they just like didn't want to move to each other's cities permanently 
And so Bachelor Winter Games was like, okay, we have a hard time getting people to move to each other's cities. What if we had someone from Florida fall in love with someone from New Zealand and we see how that works out? Like it was psychotic. But Ashley Iconetti <laughs> did leave Bachelor Winter Games with a Canadian boyfriend. And that was her love story with Jared is like she was getting on a plane to go visit her Canadian boyfriend and Jared like took her to the airport and kissed her because her having a boyfriend, he was like, wait a second, is she not an option anymore? Because Ashley was like, my first boyfriend, I'm so happy, blah, blah. Blah, blah. And it's like, this is like a really important Bachelor Winter Games storyline that is key to the Ashley and Jared story that people just don't talk about anymore. I'm, I'm just happy that Kevin and Astrid are now living their best lives with a child in Toronto and they seem very happy. But do you guys think that Jared and Ashley are going to make it? I mean, honestly, they're both lightly deranged. So I think that they could. I think they're going to make it for a while longer, but like, just think of all of the bachelor divorces that are going to happen in a decade or so. in a decade, you know, yeah. like we're, we're having just our first ones trickling out now, like JP and Ashley in the last couple of years. Yes. And people have been getting married off this show for like 15 years. One day, I think a lot of these paradise couples and bachelor nation couples, like there are going to be some cracks showing. Do I think Jared and Ashley are going to be really old together? Lifelong sweethearts. I'm agnostic <laughs> on that front. I'm not like a passionate believer in the strength of their bond. Yeah, but... Thank you guys so much for, Thank you for having us. Thanks for this having is so us. so fun. fun. We really appreciate it. I think somebody should listen to this episode and change The Bachelor according to what we've said. <laughs> I love the concept that we all came up with together. And I think... I think this is a gift. Yeah. Welcome, <laughs> Next time we do world peace and we just start banging out <laughs> <Yeah>. problems <laughs> in order of importance. <laughs> First was restoring the bachelor. All right. Thank you guys so much. Oh, Have a you. great weekend. Thank you so much to Claire and Emma for joining us. You can follow them on Instagram at Claire and Emma pod and check out their podcasts. Love to see it on Stitcher podcasts and rich text on Substack. Also, you guys, we talked to Claire and Emma for like an hour, but because we were trying to keep this episode reasonably lengthed, we cut it down a little bit for this podcast. We will be putting the full conversation up on the Patreon. So if you want it, you can subscribe to our Patreon. And don't forget, every Thursday, we are at Nikki's Unisex with a new lineup of comedians. And it is the time of our lives. So if you are in New York City, we'll see you Thursday. And now a special thank you to the apples of my eyes, our five-star reviewers. Thank you to Stop Reenacting Murders. Do you know what? I completely fucking agree with you. Stop Reenacting Murders and keep leaving beautiful reviews. Thank you to Felix Humboldt. I appreciate your humble demeanor. Thank you to Mrs. Jair 1991. Mr. Jair is so damn lucky. Thank you, Ariella Charles. I appreciate your mermaidness. Thank you, OB 1998-13. Hell yeah, thanks for the lucky numbers. Thank you, JNBGen888. Keep being Jen. Thank you, yes, 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 yes. Hell yeah, I hope you were getting laid when you wrote that. Thank you to... A-A-L-D-K-F-J-F-N-J-E. I hope that that spells something beautiful. Thank you, Aristocratic Spinster. I loved you in the Aristocats. Thank you, Glitter Paris. I appreciate your shiny demeanor. Thank you, M. Wolves, for this full recipe for cranberry baked brie. Honestly, 
I'm going to try this. Thank you, Hannah Vickers, for vickering us this review. Thank you to H3Y.333. Third time's the charm. Thank you, Brooklyn underscore. Hell yeah. Respect to the town. Thank you, Bella Swanner. I hope that you recovered after that traumatic four-part movie you were in. Thank you, Not a Hater, 1112229. Thank God we hate haters around here. Thank you, Still Waiting. I hope you're not waiting too much longer. Thank you to Nia162, my favorite review from Nia and Far. Thank you to Margot Velocit. Keep going full speed, baby. Thank you to Bree X3. Hell yeah. Rule of threes. Thank you to Sinful Slattery. Keep breaking the rules with them slats. Thank you, Rosenplatt. I appreciate your roses. Thank you, Coley Davis. I hope you don't get a lump of coal for Christmas. Thanks to Text Twisted. Hopefully it gets untwisted sometime soon. Thank you to Amy Lark. Uh, hopefully this review wasn't a lark. Thanks to Hey Hey 767 Hey. Thank you for this review. Thank you, L. Lorraine. This review certainly did not rain on my parade. Thanks, Babsy. You are an absolute babe to me. Thanks, Howard Onion, my favorite sandwich ingredient. Thank you, Mel. I appreciate the number of M's you put into this. And that's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. As always, the reviewers are my lifeblood, and I appreciate you guys leaving these five-star reviews. And I love you. I'll see you next week.